1: I'm Jason Kander, and I'm Robbie Gupta, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, This week, we are just going to dedicate the entire episode to Afghanistan. kind of cuz I just want to talk about it um and we thought rather than have uh, Ravi and the rest of the listening audience just have to listen to me be like a mix of angry and sad and all that kind of stuff for an entire episode cuz that isn't super productive uh that we'd also have somebody who could elevate the conversation a little bit so we invited our friend Ben Rhodes uh you're familiar with Ben I'm sure He co-hosts with Tommy Vitor, Pod Save the World. Uh, He's an MSNBC contributor. He worked for President Obama in the foreign policy and national security space. He's the author of the book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. And he's very nice to join us on short notice. So, Ben, thanks for coming on.
0: No, no problem at all, Jason. Thanks to to have the space for a conversation.
1: Uh, I think we should start with this basic disclaimer that I'm sure we all agree with the withdrawal of forces from Afghanistan, right?
0: Yeah, yes,
1: yes. I think it's necessary to say that out front, because it seems that there is an effort, honestly, a lot of it from, I think, the Biden administration, I understand why, to sort of frame criticism of this moment as it's either you're going to leave forces in or you're not. And obviously, the reason we're having this conversation is it goes a lot deeper than that. I'm curious to start, Ben, from your perspective, working on this when do you feel like you really came to the conclusion of this is not going to work and we should not be there anymore? Like how long ago?
0: Okay. So that's a very interesting question. I thought a lot about the last couple of days. In the moment when I had, I think the realization, not that we were going to get out right away. So just to, to caveat this, I, I don't suggest that as soon as this occurred to me, I thought all forces should leave. But the moment I began to have you know, some real trepidation about the more expansive mission in Afghanistan, was after the surge that Obama had ordered. Do you remember the operation in Marja?
1: Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: So this was supposed to be kind of almost the the demonstration case of what could be done with a counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan. And McChrystal, General McChrystal, was you know, watch what we do here. We're going to show the model for how we can go in and clear an area and begin to build some capacity among the Afghans and kind of transition things to them. And, and basically what ended up happening is every stage of that operation in which our service members obviously performed uh, capably and heroically, um, it was really hard. You know, it was it was hard to dislodge the Taliban. It was hard to get any kind of sense of an Afghan governing authority. It, 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 there were serious challenges with the kind of model of how do you develop a, a different kind of economy from the kind of drug-based economy that, that the Taliban preyed upon. And I just remember thinking that this is a relatively small population center uh, in southern Afghanistan. If the idea, which was what the military's kind of pitch was around the surge of of taking a counterinsurgency strategy like this around the entire country, I mean I mean, the scale of what was required to do that versus kind of what I saw in this kind of you know in miniature operation in Marja, just occurred to me that there's just no way that we could sustain that effort even if it could succeed it would require even far more resources than had been ordered in with the surge over a pretty open-ended exterior period of time. And that's when, it, for me personally, really hit home that like, look, we have a space in Afghanistan to be able to conduct a counterterrorism mission and and very aggressively did in the the first Obama term to degrade al-Qaeda, particularly in Pakistan. So Afghanistan is almost kind of a platform to get at the challenge of al-Qaeda in Pakistan. But this broader mission of kind of pacifying the entire country, defeating the Taliban militarily and building up a governing authority, I think, you know, for me, it was actually ironically the the height of the surge when I realized that I just don't think that is, is either an achievable or sustainable mission.
1: I think it's right around the same time for me, because I think that what's paired with that is the, and you alluded to this, is the recognition that the initial objective of denying the safe haven for terrorism had been achieved. I mean, it was at, at that yeah. point, that's right around the point where we, I think we were able to look at it and go, okay, that's not really in doubt anymore. Proof of that was that they were having to move their operations to that sort of lawless section of Pakistan. Because because yeah. they, they couldn't operate in a way where they could plan international terrorist attacks. And, and in fact, it, I mean, Pakistan had become an external sanctuary for launching attacks into Afghanistan um, at that point. Yes. So I agree. And, and then what anybody listening to this is thinking is, well, then how the hell did we end up there for so much longer? Yeah. And I don't fully have the answer to that, but it kind of taps into the part where I get a little angry and not at anybody in particular, but it's angry because I realize that ultimately the answer to that, I think, is Americans in the last week have d- rediscovered that we've been at war in Afghanistan for a really long time. And they're kind of yeah. mad to find that out. And yeah. that just pisses me off. <laughs> like, well,
0: Jason, yeah, I, I guess I can kind of walk. Here's how why I think we're still there. And, and look, I, I on the spectrum of Obama advisors, um, I don't think it would surprise people that well, number one, I wasn't like you know call, calling the shots on the war in Afghanistan, but but insofar as I, uh, uh, over the period of the eight Obama years, you know I I was kind of becoming more senior, you know I was usually on the the spectrum arguing for withdrawal. I think you know, essentially, if you think about this, we're 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 peaking at about a hundred thousand troops through the surge, uh, which kind of culminates in the spring of twenty eleven, and, and that's really the the effort. You know, Obama's logic, because I mean, you identified saying the war in Afghanistan it's almost helpful to think of it as two wars, right? Like there's the war to deny a safe haven to terrorists and to kind of give the United States a very large platform in South Asia to be able to go after Al-Qaeda, particularly in Pakistan as well as in Afghanistan. Um, And then there's this war to build up Afghan security forces and Afghan governing authority and and to kind of degrade the Taliban sufficiently that an Afghan government can survive. And so the surge is the height of both of those efforts because it's both the the highest pace of the effort to go after the uh, Al-Qaeda safe haven, which obviously reaches its crescendo with the operation to take out Osama bin Laden in the spring of 2011, and the height of our efforts to kind of uh, support uh, an enhanced governing authority. And, and then Obama begins a, a drawdown in June of 2011. And the whole theory of the drawdown is we're going to train up these Afghan security forces and transition to them. And 2014 was the moment in which the Afghans were going to move into the lead for most of the fighting in, in the country. That did happen. And, and I do want to say something like, and we'll get to this later, I'm sure, like, I don't like hearing Biden talk about them not fighting because I'm aware that from 2014 on, we were asking them, hey, you guys are in the lead mm-hmm. now. And th- that's when they started really taking on casualties. And so we get to a point, I, I think all things equal, Obama's goal was to, to, to end this by the end of his presidency. Part of what happens is you have the rise of ISIS around 2014 and 15. And you get, you know, kind of mo- far more hyperbolic warnings um, about the, the risk of an ISIS presence uh, in, in, in South Asia. And so we get down to about 10,000 troops at the end of the Obama administration. And we had meetings about whether or not to, to go to zero. And the military, the State Department, you know, the, the national security team at large was basically warning that if we did that, This would happen. What we're seeing now would happen, and that there was also this kind of counterterrorism risk because of ISIS. And Obama determined, look, uh, I'm at the end of my presidency. Given the choice between like doing this difficult thing of totally withdrawing and leaving that to my successor, or maintaining some minimal presence and letting my successor decide what to do, he chose the latter. So that's why. I mean, that's a very short reason, (laughs) a short description of why you know this. uh, Once the surge. Was pursued, and you get to that many troops. You know, the it's going to take years to to draw that down, and and um, and so I think the to me, I think the surge in retrospect was a mistake. I don't think we needed that that large of a plus up, at least um, with that expansive a mission. But uh, but but that I think is why this didn't get done by the end of the Obama presidency, and then obviously Trump gets kind of talked into surging a mini surge by his generals, uh, and McMaster and, and Mattis. And so that, you know, and here we are.
1: But you know what, you, you made a great point that I hadn't thought about much the last few days, which in that 2014 period is when you, we began to see the rise of, of ISIS in Afghanistan. And i kind of, I, even I had kind of forgotten about that, 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 that extended that first mission. It, it, it absolutely became a question of whether or not we were going to allow, maybe it's not Al Qaeda, but it's their you know, ugly cousin, ISIS, to, yeah. uh, to now use it as a sanctuary and a platform from which to, to commit international terrorism. I mean, it's a great point. It, I really what I'm driving at here for listeners is that there seems to be and it's, it's normal for people to want a couple of things. They want to have a very simple understanding of, of a 20 year war. And they want to know who to blame and let's be honest like our listeners want to know what republican to blame and right and yeah and it's just not that simple this this crossed over four presidents and it is a series of ridiculously hard choices uh where we have to be honest and look back and go yeah in a lot of cases these were the wrong choices but we cannot have a revisionist history that says, and everybody knew at the time. This is not Iraq. This is not whether to invade Iraq.
0: Oh, so I'd say two things, Jason. Like first of all, the only thing I'd offer, in the simplistic one, which is because I think your listeners are probably you know not that dissimilar from some of mine. Um, you know, they looked at Trump. I mean, look, the the basic original sin here was when we went in under Bush, um, and we toppled the Taliban and began to put Al Qaeda on the run. I don't think you or I would have thought at that time that this was a nation building exercise. I think we all thought we were going to go and we're going to take out these people who did this thing to us. And if they ever come back, we're going to kill
1: them. That's 100% what I thought.
0: Yeah. And and so in that scenario, we could have been home by the first quarter of 2002. Mm -hmm. And, 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 And instead, there's this kind of decision made in the cubristic moment that Bush found himself in this imperial moment, if we're honest about it, of no, no, we're going to set up this government and this is about nation building. And, and then to have made that decision to bite off that much in Afghanistan to say, oh, but by the way, we're just going to go invade this other country over right. here. <laughs> That's going to be our primary focus. That's going to be where we surge most of our resources, most of our troops, most of our diplomatic attention. And we're just going to kind of hope that this thing works out over here with a fraction of the resources we put in, that's it. I mean, like, if, if you're looking for something to blame, and look, that's not to say people shouldn't blame the Obama or Obama's administration or Trump or his administration or Biden or his, there's blame to go around to everybody involved in this 20-year uh, exercise. So I'm not suggesting that, that to, like, let us off the hook. I do think, though, that if you're, like, when the history is written, like, that initial decision to nation build and then the almost concurrent decision to invade and nation build in a different place it's so illogical because <laughs> by the time we come in, there's a resilient Taliban insurgency. The die had been somewhat cast, and we're basically just dealing with bad and worse choices uh, from then on.
2: Yeah, and over the past few days, I've been cataloging all the different people who've been blamed at various points for this, and you know, and a lot of these are valid. So you know, you have the fact that. We kind of whiffed on getting bin Laden at Tora Bora. We didn't accept the Taliban surrender in December of 2001, which seemed like it, it was a pivotal moment. Uh, we made the decision to nation build. We invaded Iraq. The 2010 surge, some people were saying it was too small to accomplish the maximalist political goals that we had, but big enough to escalate the war. The Doha negotiations, mm-hmm. excluding the Afghanistan government, um, rejecting the idea of a monarchy, the return of the monarchy which gets back to those maximalist political goals. And I'm not sure, You know, some of those are more nuanced and some of those might even be incorrect criticisms. But one criticism that I come back to, because I'm the closest thing to a regular civilian on this, although I was with you, Ben, for a couple of years in, in the national security team out of the UN, was a, an argument that Tom Nichols made in the Atlantic this week, which is that the public is also to blame, which is me and, and, and others who just haven't really been focused on this war. And uh, that's simplistic too in some ways but i do think that this was a war that wasn't fought by america it was a war fought by a, a small sliver of americans and all of a sudden it seems like the same people who were epidemiologists a year and a half ago and then election experts in november are now <laughs> afghanistan yeah, yeah. experts uh, you know all of a sudden everybody's attentive on this and you know what were black squares in june or you know hashtags are now nuanced takes on Afghanistan,
1: and they've been, <laughs> and they've like, been against we'll it the they, entire time. That's the yeah, other
2: thing. Can't find anybody who who's been for this war that's lasted for twenty years. All of that is to say, it seems like we're all to blame for this, and I don't know. I don't think that's even helpful, really. The blame I, argument, you know. I, well,
0: I guess here's how, because yeah, there's a whole public opinion piece of this that, that you could unpack, right? Which is that, and and I I agree with the criticism of the surge, and but part of the the tension of that moment was. That you had a unified military and kind of totally unified national security apparatus from Bob Gates to Hillary Clinton to the US military, just it, to the kind of pundocracy that we're seeing now that seems to love these wars, just almost like shaking Obama by the lapels in 2009. You have to surge. You have to surge. And then you have public opinion that's like, hey, there's just a financial crisis. Like the last thing on earth we want to be doing is spending more money in Afghanistan. And that does account for what you described, which was gotten kind of caught in the middle, where you're surging, but you're trying to lower expectations for how long you can surge, and you send that kind of mixed message. The alternative wasn't an option of just saying, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have over hundred thousand troops in Afghanistan indefinitely." It was not something that was politically even feasible, and so public opinion did play a role here. I think that the bigger problem. I've thought a lot about this a lot, and, and, and I deal with I I kind of unpack this in in my book. We were promised like huge victories after nine eleven. Like remember the rhetoric of Bush? It was like this is going to be like World War two. This is going to be like the Cold War. This is like the generational struggle of our time. They're going to be on the dustbin of history. And so I think Americans got kind of accustomed to, particularly on the right. If you watch Fox News in the Bush years, you know you were always on the doorstep of some some transformative military victory. And Bush was Churchill, and and the Democrats were the the wusses. And I think the reality by the time, certainly by the time Obama came in, but I think probably by 2004, is that we weren't going to like win these wars in any traditional sense. You know, there wasn't going to be some surrender in in Iraq or Afghanistan. There wasn't going to be some pluralistic democracy that welcomed American presidents without insurgencies happening in the country. And I think in the public opinion side, like, I mean, the Trumpism is very interesting because on the one hand... People don't want to accept the premise that America won't win a war, but they, they don't want to fight the war either, you know? And that that is an incredibly complicated dynamic. And I think what it led to is all the animus that was ginned up against Al-Qaeda and radical Islam and all the the rest of it be kind of became portable. And it's like, then now let's direct that animus at immigrants at the southern border or a black president or Antifa or whoever it is. Right. And, and so Trumpism kind of repurposed all that xenophobic energy, uh, elsewhere. And people kind of like stopped paying attention to the wars cause they didn't want to pay attention to wars that we weren't winning. Uh, and so then when this thing pops up again, it's like, Oh yeah, that's right. We didn't win the wars. Um, let's figure out who to attack for that. You know?
1: Yeah. And I just, I want to say on the record, like I supported the surge like the surge in Afghanistan, in retrospect, like I read that wrong, right? Like, you know, it also like you, it, the surge was what led me to realize this is not going to work and it's time to wind this down. But I, I enthusiastically supported it because I was thinking to myself at the time, like, you know, I was only a few years removed from being there where we, when we Definitely did not have enough people on the ground and our per capita casualty rate was high. And I can remember, you know, doing a mission to Jalalabad from Kabul where we were supposed to have helicopters and we had to drive over the road and Jabad Road is just not a road you want to drive. And I wasn't like bitter about that, but it was anecdotes like that that I remembered where people were saying, well, we can't take the helicopters because most of those resources are in Iraq. And so in my head, I'm yeah. going like, well, l- let's see what would happen if we had the resources we should have had in the first place. But that's a good example of like, I was wrong. Uh, you know, there's just so much. This is such a hard set It's a set war. Of- nobody's ever right. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, a war.
0: Once you start a war, nobody's going to be right about it. Yeah.
1: And I also want to add like, the one person like I will I will blame until I die is Donald Rumsfeld. Like just for the for the yeah. <laughs> for the record. Like yeah. and as a quick story about that, I can remember being in my bunk in my little safe house in Afghanistan and um, one of my roommates, one of my bunkmates in there shook me awake in the middle of the night. And I like thought we were getting mortared or whatever, like I was getting ready to roll under the under the bunk. And he shook me awake to say, Jason, Rummy resigned. Like, I mean, it was so. just so people understand how angry we were at Rumsfeld, like sleep was hard to come by. And I was in no way irritated that I was woken up from being asleep to learn that news. And he knew I wouldn't be upset about it. Right. So, yeah. So anyway, we'll just blame him for sure. And then everybody else can have some, too. Jason, as you know, I'm an
2: optimizer and one of the things that took me a little too long to optimize is my sleep. And before I switched to Helix mattresses, my sleep was terrible, but they have a quiz over at Helix that takes just two minutes to complete and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to so the perfect mattress for you. You and I, Jason, we took the quiz and wound up with the same mattress, the Midnight Luxe, because we uh, we like a medium feel and sleep on our side
1: but that said, everybody's unique. Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, which I think is a really nice way of saying if you sweat a lot when you sleep, which... I do. Yeah, me too. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again.
2: And just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free, and they'll even pick it up for you if you don't like it, but you will. And so Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $200 off two free pillows.
1: I've watched people go through the cycle of having a credit balance month after month and it's almost like you can see the stress over their shoulders, like the actual credit balance over their shoulders when they walk, like they're in a video game or something and that's like the avatar above them. But Upstart can help those people. They can help folks make that final payment so they can finally get ahead.
2: Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. And Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score, and they're expanding access to affordable credit. And unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and your current employment uh, to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000, and you could receive your funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com/majority54. That's upstart.com/majority54, and don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. And loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com/slash majority fifty-four.
1: I want to make this clear for people. The very difficult decision with regard to the Afghan government that President Biden had to make over the last few weeks that is really an answer to the question, a partial answer to the question of why did this happen so quickly? and why why were we not evacuating people weeks ago so let's just start with your impressions of and i don't know you perhaps worked directly with members of the government of afghanistan at some point but either way your impressions overall of the government of afghanistan during your time working on these issues
0: my impression was that it was a government that never you know never really had control over the country right i mean they they, they weren't pulling levers that were affecting events Out in rural Afghanistan or even out in places like Kandahar, they were incredibly dependent on the United States, right? So think of it as like a machine that was built to kind of plug into the United States. Mm -hmm. So their security forces depended upon everything, on us for everything. But even just the execution of their budgets and their development programs, you know, because this was a nation building exercise, like, You know, we were both providing a lot of assistance, but also providing a lot of expertise. And at the top, there was clearly corruption. But there's corruption because that's how politics was done in Afghanistan to some extent, right? Like you have to take care of this local leader because you know this is the person that can make sure that the water is turned on. And again, I wasn't down in that in the in the weeds to that extent. But so some of the corruption was was like of a unique variety, like people stealing money and moving it to the Gulf or something. Some of it was just kind of like this is how actually politics happens in Afghanistan. You know, at the end of the day, you know Ashraf Ghani, you know, he's this technocrat who goes back and probably you know makes a very good finance minister in a developing country. He's not the kind of strong central authority that can can whip everybody into shape and clean up the corruption and you know, make the trans, trains run on time in Afghanistan. And people have to remember, they, they've never had that. You know, there, there's never been a central government in Afghanistan that 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 govern in a way that is kind of familiar to, to you and me, right? So I, I can be critical of them, but I'm also like, I'm more critical of, of the United States in the sense that when you come in and you are all the force in the country, you control violence in the country, you control the bulk of the resources in the country, and you have a government that is dependent becomes kind of overly dependent on training wheels um, and a government that becomes corrupt and a lot of the corruption is the war economy that we built like you know contracting money and where is that going they they definitely failed but like i'm not sure that they were you know set up to succeed either
1: yeah well i mean like let's be honest anybody who was in a position of power in afghanistan was there because that's where we allowed them to be and yeah. And and the public knew that. <laughs> you know, like they sensed it inherently. And and, and one of the things, Jason, like the the other, but underneath that surface,
0: the pre war warlords never went away. If you look at who's in this transition council, it's literally Dossam Hekmatir, uh, uh, Karzai, like again, some of them are, are in, some of them are out now. But like these are the same guys that were running militias in the 90s and they never went away. So you had this kind of technocratic government in Afghanistan, and then you had these kind of regional. Thugs or players who who never who, who never left the and, scene
1: and really all they did is sort of rotate through the government that we had put up in different like titles. You know, like like yeah. Dostum was when I was there he was defense minister, but like really he was just minister of Dostum. Like that's what he was. Like yeah. he was just another perch from which to run his stuff. And I mean, Hekmatyar, like, that's a dude who was like a former prime minister of Afghan who really just became the head of of the Hesbi Islami Gubaldine terrorist network and political network. And like I That's a dude who we went back and forth from like working with to like, let's be honest, hunting. Like I was part of that. I mean, so like, yeah, so Yeah. so it's important for people to understand that the the quote unquote government of Afghanistan is an attempt at a government. And what I was trying to make clear for people this week was that there was a passage that really struck me in the president's remarks where he talked about how he addressed why the evacuation of Americans and of our allies and of Afghans who had worked with us, why it didn't happen sooner. And it was a very short part of the speech. But what he said was that the government of Afghanistan asked us, not to begin those sort of uh, operations those sort of evacuation operations and, and and to basically give them a chance and so we did and i've been thinking i i haven't been able to stop thinking about that because i think that was the yeah. critical decision and i can't figure out what i would have done it was such a hard decision and for people who don't know for the bulk of the 20 years the center of gravity in, in at least the part of the war that you talked about the nation building part of the war the center of gravity has been the government of afghanistan which we referred to as Goa, right? Like GOA. Goa's ability to demonstrate that they could have a chance to operate competently was the center of gravity. And everybody right now is on cable news and everywhere else, they're they're grouping in Afghanistan and Iraq as if they're the same war. And there's a million ways in which they're different. But for purposes of this discussion, the biggest way they're different is in Iraq, our forces were trying to win hearts and minds. In Afghanistan, we had the hearts and minds the moment we showed up for the most part. We were trying to win faith. We were trying to convince people that it wasn't a losing bet to bet on the coalition and the government of Afghanistan, because if you bet on us and you lost, you were, the Taliban was gonna kill you. And so in order to get people to work with us and to get the military to, to fight and be cohesive, people had to believe that Goa could, could succeed. And that was like my whole role there was to like do anti-corruption, anti-espionage investigations as a means to eventually making Goa more legitimate. And my experience was they were constantly and understandably constantly preoccupied Goa with looking legitimate. Like I would come back with an investigation and say, you know, this warlord is still involved in narco trafficking and he's killed this people, these many people, and he's put their heads on stakes outside his palace. and. The solution sometimes, and I can't even fault him, would be, let's move him to a different province because he'll be further away. From, like how you take your kid at it, their school and put them in a different school when they're in with a bad group of friends. Like They were like, yeah. let's pull them away from their network. So the point I'm making is that when the government of Afghanistan came to the Biden administration and said, please don't start these evacuations. Because it will destroy confidence in our government and it will cause the military to fold and believe that there's no hope, and then they'll take Kabul right away. What people don't realize is that's a super hard choice because you don't know whether they're going to be able to hold, but you do know that if you start the evacuation early and Kabul falls right away, you'll never know whether you caused that.
0: Yeah. I guess there are two ways I look at that, Jason. And I I, I agree with you. And I'm also incredibly sympathetic to. How hard these jobs are. So I say that with all appropriate caveats. The two issues I have is there, there's kind of two tranches of people that you know there there's military interpreters, people who worked for us. You know, they worked at the embassy, or much more larger number of people. You know, several tens of thousands of people who worked with our military. And then, secondly, there are people that believed in us, and and I think you can identify in particular people who. You know, USAID gave them money to set up human rights organizations or women's rights organizations, so they, they were direct recipients of our strategy. You know, because they were USAID subcontractors or they're funded by certain U.S. development fund or international development funds. These are people who started NGOs, people who will definitely be in danger by the Taliban just as much as military interpreters. There, there's two decisions that I kind of don't understand along this this process. I think even if you're you know a mass evacuations of all those people. I can see why the government of Afghanistan is warning against that. But the, the 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 military interpreter issue, the civ issue, the numbers are so small. I mean, we had hit 1,400, I think, but before this, the, the bottom fell out. Like, Why you couldn't significantly ramp that up? And so it's not necessarily C-17s airlifting people every day, but you're getting into the tens of thousands of people – because I think it stands to reason that if the US military is pulling out, that the you know military interpreters who worked with us will, will, would be willing and, and able to take that shot of coming to the United States. So why that program wasn't dramatically scaled up, um, I don't understand. Because I think you could have done that without kind of mass evacuation vibes. And then the second thing is even right now, I'm I'm not sure why we haven't extended a lifeline to people beyond that program, to include, like I said, those Afghans who who, you know, who are clearly in danger and you know, were recipients of US funding, they seem to be excluded from the evacuations now. Uh, I hope that is changing. I hope that's not the case. You know, So I, I understand the, lo- the logic point is absolutely the case. If, if they're telling you that if you guys fl- fly a bunch of military transport planes in here and are airlifting thousands of people out every single day you know, th- this could lead to a collapse of confidence. I still think you could have done a lot more with those four months. And I also think that, I hope that they do a lot more with the time
1: they I, have now. I agree. And I also think objectively, either way, we made the wrong choice. Yes. And 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 I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to think that given my experience of the government of Afghanistan, that I would have made a choice that said, you know what, we've been doing this based on optics in order to increase confidence for 20 years and it hasn't worked. And this is the end game either way. Yeah. So we're just going to do what we need to do. But I don't know that for sure. Like it wasn't a clear choice. And I believe that I would have made the right choice, but it is belief at best. And it is in, with informed with hindsight.
2: Jason, I'm heading back to Costa Rica next week to surf. I've already started packing. What do you think number one is on my list? I'm going to go with uh, Athletic Greens. That's right. And I have those those little travel packs that they send. And and honestly, like I was a little worried before I went to go search my cupboards because I'm not gonna leave the country without those travel packs. And so I was about to cancel the trip, but I found a
1: whole other package of those things. And so I'm ready to go. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients. That they need to thrive that's where athletic greens can help you it's a daily all-in-one superfood powder it's your nutrition essential by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your health routine today while avoiding the need to take multiple pills i got rid of my multivitamin because of athletic greens and one tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients,
2: including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. So simply visit athleticgreens.com majority and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, visit athleticgreens.com majority and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today.
1: Recently, I decided to do a very, you know, unorthodox thing for where I live, which is I decided to eat a lot less meat and eat a lot more fish. And Wild Alaskan Company has made that a lot easier because this is just really, really quality wild-caught seafood.
2: Yeah, and Wild Alaskan Company delivers high-quality, sustainably-sourced wild-caught seafood right to your door. You could choose from salmon, whitefish, or a combination, and every month there are different specials to explore. And each shipment contains premium, wild-caught, individually-wrapped portions of delicious seafood that's ready to prepare and easy to cook. And Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended it to be, always wild, never farmed or modified, and contains no antibiotics. You could adjust, pause, or cancel your membership anytime, and they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So get your nutrition from nature with Wild Alaskan Company. And right now, You can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit WildAlaskanCompany.com slash Majority54. That's WildAlaskanCompany.com slash Majority54 for $15 off your first box. WildAlaskanCompany.com slash Majority54. Make sure you use our URL to let them know we sent you. What I'm confused about with what the Biden administration has put out so far is they've they've kind of half owned this and half passed the buck a little bit. One thing that I think is so obvious is that there are just so many things that went wrong in our assessment of the situation. Like Biden five weeks ago wouldn't be saying it's unlikely the Taliban is going to overrun the country. We wouldn't be burning documents and right. rushing troops back into this country if this yeah. was if we had a solid foundation uh, in our assumptions. And so even if we, like you said, Jason, like Even if it were true that we were giving the government a chance, there should have been so many contingencies in place that would prevent us from this herky jerky exit. And there's also a question of competing loyalties, right? Like our loyalty to the Afghan government uh, and our loyalty to the people who looked out for us, in some ways, we're competing in this interim period of time uh, if we're to believe uh, what people are saying. And, you know, and I know it's like, you know, we've all been there in various ways and like, or not there in Afghanistan, but like in some of these uh, rooms. I don't want to be like unfair to people involved, but I also think it's important for us to be clear about this. And and as Democrats, I think there's so much attention people are paying to the the Doha negotiations and all that, which seemed like there was incredible problems with that. But it seems unambiguously true that there are some serious mistakes over the past few months, at the very least. Here,
0: yeah, it, yeah, the Doha thing. Um... What that did, right, is once Trump cuts a deal with the Taliban and says, we're pulling out, by the way, all the contractors are pulling out. So the Afghan military is not going to really be able to function. What I saw after that is all the, the regional Afghan leaders cut their own version of the same deal with the Taliban. Mm-hmm. You know, so if people want to ask, like, why is everybody folding away? It's because they made the same deal Trump did. Hey, don't shoot at us, Taliban. And, and that's it. That said, though, to your point, like as soon as this decision was announced, the the contingencies, you know, like the, the checklist of things that you would work through would 100 percent include Afghans who worked with us. Like there's no everybody in the world was warning about this issue. This wasn't like something that crept up on them. Um, and so to me, that that's why it's the most glaring thing is. If you're leaving, there's a moral responsibility—a clear-cut, black and white, like unambiguous moral responsibility to the Afghans who, who who worked. You know, and you can choose where to draw the line. Is it just the people who worked for us? Well, that's still almost like a hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then is it the people that you know took to grant money? For, uh, we could figure out where to draw that line, but the inability or, or unwillingness—and um, I, I hope it's not because they didn't want optics of large numbers of refugees come in the United States. I, I hope to God that's not what the um, determining thing was, but because that's something you can plan for and execute, right? There's certain things in the world that you can't control. Like you can't control, you can't even control whether the Afghan military fights, you can't control the quality of certain Afghan leaders. You, you know, You can control how many Afghans who want to leave you take out. That's the failure that, uh, you know, you can't blame that on Trump. You know, you can't like that's just glaring. That's why that, that that's the one that stands out. Well, to me. and
1: furthermore, you can't blame provincial governors and local, you know, can for wanting to survive. Right. Yeah. Kandak military commanders, like which is Afghan battalions and and so forth, for surrendering because and that I think if there's been one thing over the last few days that has pissed me off more than anything else, it has been the steady drumbeat of well, why didn't they fight for their country? Because we lost 2,500 people in Afghanistan. The Afghan security forces lost 66,000 over the last 20 years. Like, like the idea that these people didn't fight for their country makes me so angry. And on top of that, like once once the doha negotiation has happened once that deal has been made if you're if 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 you're one of these provincial governors in the area that let's be honest everybody's just moving toward kabul that's what's happening they're moving through or is gone and they're moving you know just a week ago or two weeks ago jalalabad and like they're coming through whether you're a provincial governor or a soldier on the ground you're looking at it going okay i'm no longer getting paid um i'm hungry yeah. like look when i was over there and i was doing my job as an intelligence officer sneaking around meeting with people i was i was pretty firm in my belief that like they're not going to take me alive because i knew what was going to happen i knew my head be cut off on youtube and like i wasn't going to be taken alive but it was a much easier decision for me to make because i knew how it ends it ends with i get killed right which is bad but it's not as bad as like if after they kill me as long as I put up a fight, they're going to retaliate. And by the way, they're headed to my hometown, and they they know yeah. who I am now, and they're going to find my wife and my kids and my parents, and they're going to kill all of them. And so yes. the the idea that people are going, geez, we've trained them. Why didn't why didn't they fight for their country? When by the way, their country is a place where the lines are drawn by other people. And like if you're in, in Kandahar, like you're you're Pashtun. And you have nothing in common with a soldier from you know, up near Bagram who's like Tajik yeah. or Uzbek. like what does yeah. it even mean to fight for your country? and And so my point is like, I don't even know what my point is. I'm just really mad about no, that.
0: your point is your point is that you're right. Your point is that but when like Jason, this is my single biggest grievance against how foreign policy is often d- discussed and often made in Washington is there are no human beings like outside of America. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, um, they're not actual people or something God. like, because I'm just say a version of what you said, but I think it bears repeating, like imagine being like a 24 year old frontline soldier in Southern Afghanistan, around like Kandahar say, like the, the heartland of where the Taliban came from. You've been fighting for years. You've seen a bunch of people killed. You've seen the United States provide less and less support. You've seen a a fucking lunatic president of the United States make a deal with the Taliban that excluded your democratically elected government. Then you've got a new president comes in and says, we're getting out. We've been there too long. It's on to you guys. But the you guys is a 24-year-old who may have three sisters at home and, and a dad and he knows he's 100%. Oh, and by the way, if he has access to any social media, he's also able to read in any outlet that the U.S. government assessment is that the Afghan security forces are going to lose in <laughs> right. 18 right. months, that they're, they're, they are going to lose. So the, what the U.S. government is asking you to do is, hey, could you fight f- for 18 months so that this looks less bad, so that and, and that will give us more time to process people to, to leave? like oh and by the way what that means is yeah the taliban is likely going to kill you then they're going to go and do god knows what to your sisters because you were a part of uh the resistance to the taliban they'll, they'll burn down your house they'll, they'll eradicate any any proof of uh, that you ever existed or you can choose not to fight and live and you know live in a gr- more grim existence like y- all these fucking armchair warriors bashing the afghan security forces uh, uh, on twitter or whatever like put yourself in that guy's shoes what choice would you make you know and and i i just like it can we please just like talk about these people as if they're human beings because we don't we can't even wear a fucking mask yeah to 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 keep uh, like our neighbors alive and we expect some 24 year old kid in afghanistan to to basically get himself killed for what?
2: You know, I so I yeah, I share and, your frustration and, with the, the 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 language. And guys, right. I know Ben I want to be uh cognizant of your time and so I would love to spend no, it's I would fine love now. to spend some time talking about what now. And so as a reminder, you know, interestingly, you know, I used to be a school principal and and what I find breathtakingly sad about this war is that my fifth graders who were my fifth graders back in 2011 Many of whom were born after nine eleven are old enough to have fought in this war, which is just tragic. But so a lot of people who are now voters uh, and citizens of this country who are trying to assess this situation were born after a lot of the key events. And so one reminder is like who was the Taliban, right? They were, you know, patrolling they <laughs> were this was a country that was as insular as almost any country on the planet, except for maybe North Korea. Um, They had a morality police that was patrolling the country. Women had to wear burqas. Men had to wear beards. Um, Schools for girls were closed. Women uh, could be beaten for walking unaccompanied. Soccer and music were banned. Massive public executions were held in those soccer stadiums. It was a just horrific, violent, oppressive place. Uh, I think one question a lot of people are asking right now, and this gets to focusing on the people of Afghanistan, is what does the modern day Taliban look like? What, what what do we know? And what can we trust at this point based on how untrustworthy I think some of our intelligence has been on this? What do we know about what the Taliban of 2021 is?
0: I mean, you know, I'm sure Jason you know, has <laughs> good, good, strong views on this. I mean, I first of all, to, to add to the history, right? Part of the uncomfortable reality is America's engagement in Afghanistan is it's actually 40 years. And we were funding not just the Mujahideen who fought against the Soviets, but we were funding Islamist education in Afghanistan in the eighties because we thought that would lead to better resistance against against the Soviets. So we were right about that. You know, by by way. Way. It was yeah. the yeah. wrong choice, but
1: yeah. it did lead to better resistance against the Soviets and against it, us. It, it did.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting our our fingerprints are all over this thing. The Taliban is is a is a brutal thuggish, uh, misogynist, uh, Islamist movement. And, and watching them in recent days, what they are is they're more media savvy. And I think that they probably do want greater international recognition than they had the last time they were in power. They, not many governments recognized them last time. I think they're going to want to identify what is the minimum that we have to do to just kind of be treated like a, a, a government. That said- out in all the other parts of Afghanistan other than Kabul, I'm sure right now what this means is there are reprisal killings. They are sending women, they're reversing all the gains that women have made. There's, there's real intimidation. There's kind of a militarized society with checkpoints everywhere. I think that's like, Kabul is not all of Afghanistan. And I think what they're doing now is the classic double game of they're being their old selves everywhere. And in Kabul, they're saying certain things. But even in Kabul, I'm talking to people they're going around. They're knocking on everybody's doors. They're, you know, they're they're kind of mapping out who was where and who did what, and and so my fear is that while they're putting on this this kind of savvier face, they're just waiting for the attention to drift. Th- that said, I think there is they're acting more like a political entity now than they have in the past, and there's some flexibility there to make things less terrible for Afghans if they truly do. Kind of seek to be something of a, a, a somewhat more normal government, but only around, I think, the margins. I, I think one thing we have to do is keep a door open so that if the Taliban continues to allow people to leave of their own volition after we no longer c- control the airport, you could still have tens of thousands of people get out through overland routes or you know, maybe by getting on a plane um, and, and get
2: to the and United States. Ben, who's the they here? Who's the leadership? Like Because it was Mullah Omar. Is there like a is there a new like leader that we should be paying attention to here?
0: Well, Mullah Baradar, who uh, you know w- was uh, arrested and detained during the Obama administration, imprisoned in Pakistan, and then released um, uh, as part of the Trump administration's plan, he seems to be the de facto leader. It does seem like they, you know they they've been running like a, a sure council, you know, like they have they have a kind of an executive council of the board, if you will. And and so I think it's more decentralized from my perspective than it was under Mullah Omar. But yeah, I think that they're going to want to – they at least want to create the impression that they want to be treated like a a normal government. And the the decision that the US is going to have to make that's going to be a very hard one is the impulse is going to be, well, don't don't work with these guys. Um, But if you turn them into a pariah, does that incentivize their worst impulses or is there any leverage to affect them by engaging them? Uh, I'm pessimistic. Uh, I'm not, you know, starry-eyed about anything they've said, but uh, you know, you want to do anything you can to make things as least bad as it can be for Afghans,
1: particularly women. I think that's right on, and we sh- we have to be careful not to be fooled by the fact that they seem to be a more savvy and a more less primitive version of the Taliban from twenty years ago. Because who isn't less primitive? It's been twenty years. What people need to understand when they when this is referred to as a civil war, this is a civil tribal war. Now, there are lots and lots of, of people in the Pashtun tribe, including my former translator, who are not Taliban or not, and in fact, fought the Taliban, but... The Taliban come from the south and the southeastern portion of Afghanistan from the Pashtun portion. It is a tribal movement. And the word Taliban is derived from Talib means student. To go back to your point about it comes out of the Islamist education and that, you know, move toward extremism. So that's all important to know that, yes, that group of people. Obviously, we'll have learned lessons over the last 20 years. We've watched them learn those lessons. We watched them develop, like, uh, you know, basically a, a system where they had press secretaries for the last 10 years of the war. Like, yeah. they, they want to engage in the world in a way that doesn't get them sanctioned, that allows them to do business with other parts of the world because they want to make money and they don't want to be, uh, yeah. you know, they don't want to be shut off. But yeah, I, I 100% agree that when the cameras are gone, their audience is no longer going to be the international community because they won't need anything from us, then their audience is going to be the average Afghan who might do what any what any totalitarian regime is worried about, which is rise up. And they're not going to allow that. They're going to make sure that they are retaliating and punishing and putting fear into people. So with all that said, on that very happy moment to to end it on, my big question that I leave all of this with is, how does somebody like me, Incorporate this conclusion to our mission into my idea of my own life, which I'm not going to require the two of you to answer, but like to figure out for me. Can it. I? Can I? Can I? Can I take a step? Yeah, sure. that, Jason?
0: Not not you. Yeah, Afghanistan veterans. Yeah, I. This is from a totally different perspective, so I don't want people to think that you know. I, I, this is more just how do you think about power and trauma and. When things don't go the way you want them to, right? Because I've spent a few years thinking about what happens when a lot of things I worked on that I cared about got totally dismantled by the next right. guy you know you you start to realize that in the world, nothing ever turns out exactly how you want it to be. And what do you control? You control like the choices you made, like the things that you believed in like the individual lives that, that you impacted, and never mind the, the, the mission of, of protecting America after 9-11, like the mission that I think most people thought they were signing up for, like America has been pretty well protected since 9-11. Like there's not been significant terrorist attacks, but put that aside, even the Afghans that you interacted with, the way that you carried yourself, like the, the survivability of the things that you believed in. And one of the reasons I'm so focused on the Afghans getting out is that what could those people do? they can do amazing things with their lives like uh, the, the the Afghan women who've been educated like every single one of them is is precious every one of their education is and and so i think we're kind of hardwired to think about a scorecard and like was i a part of a war that we won or was i but never mind that none of these wars since world war 2 have been particularly clear I think you just have to think about like what what broader forces in the world am I part of? I don't know. That's all I got. I got
2: <laughs> I, like, like that's I have know. two thoughts to add to that. Uh, one is even though it seems like some of these gains might feel temporary and and very much are temporary in Afghanistan, I was shocked actually. Jonathan Rauch did a really interesting summary about just how big of an impact the United States had on Afghanistan and, and veterans like you, Jason, can be proud of the fact that life dramatically improved for people there while we were there. So infant mortality dropped by 50%, life expectancy increased by six years, electricity consumption 10 times, years in school went up three years for men and four for women, and university graduates went from 31,000 to 200,000. And uh, people like Michael Hanlon argue that tons and tons of lives were saved because if you kind of look at the history of warfare within Afghanistan before we were there... He credibly argues that there would have been way, way, way more bloodshed had we not been there. But I know we're not keeping a scorecard. And so the other thing I want to say is that for those of us who didn't serve, uh, I want to use the grab or section as we close out to to plug the work that you're doing, Jason, at, at Veterans Community Project and say that we all need to do better by the people who come back from these wars within this country.
0: I can't imagine you know how much trauma can be stirred up by the types of images we've seen and and so I think people do need to be very deliberate. Um, if you know people, uh, you know, as I do, as as, as we all uh, who served in Afghanistan in different capacities, too, by the way, I know a lot of people who served on the civilian side, you know, to reach out to them and encourage them to to, to not be uh, afraid to talk to somebody.
1: Yeah, because I appreciate what y'all said just now, because I've been struggling with that the last few days. But what's probably bothered me the most is how many of my fellow Afghanistan veterans I've talked to or I've you know, seeing them comment on social media at me and just say like, they feel like it was all meaningless. And like, I, I, that is tempting to feel that way, but I, I choose not to feel that way. I know that we made a huge difference when we were there. I know that we accomplished some of our objectives that were really important ones. And it's interesting. I, I commented the other day that I have all these mixed feelings and one of them is pride. And people were like, how can you be proud of it? And it's like, yeah. well, cause I choose to be like, but that's the thing is like, it's not easily accessible. You have to choose to be. And uh, so I choose to be.
0: Because you know what you did, yeah. right? And you know what the people who served with you did. And, and you're proud of what you did. Yeah. You going to be you know, proud of uh, every decision that politicians make.
1: Well, thanks for doing this, Ben. Thanks, Robbie, for indulging this conversation. There's a lot people can gain from listening to what Ben has to say. So uh, he's at B-R-H-O-D-E-S. So at B-Rhodes uh, on Twitter. And the book... Is after the fall, Being American in the World We've Made. You can hear more of him and Tommy Vitor on Pod Save the World. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. Good talking. All right, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.
2: Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Special thanks to Diana Candard and theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders, Zachary Carabell and Executive Director, Emma Lucas